throughout Luke. And so today we turn to the 13th chapter. Um, look at Luke 13, chapter uh, verses 1 through 9. If you'd like to follow along on your pew Bible, you may. It's on page 76 in the New Testament section. Again, this is um, Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. I invite you now to listen to God's word. At that very time, three, um, at that very time, there were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed with the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the other people living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. And then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the man working the vineyard, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and I still found none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Friends, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. The power that is in Jesus, in the power which all other powers on earth and in heaven give way, the power that holds all things in existence from the sparrow's eye to the furthest star is above all else a loving power. When I heard these words many years ago, a friend of mine recently recounted, something in me opened to the possibility of, of God's love in my life in a way nothing else had ever up to that point. It's Fred Beatner's sermon preached decades ago. Again, it reads, The power that is in Jesus, before which all other powers on earth and in heaven give way, the power uh, that holds all things in existence from the sparrow's eye to the furthest star is above all else a loving power. That means we are loved even in our lostness. That means we are precious. Every one of us. Every city is precious. The world is precious. Someday, the precious time will be up for each of us. But the kingdom of God is at hand. Nothing is different. And everything is different. It reaches out to each of our precious hands while there is still time. Time is what appears that Jesus is worried about in this parable. Uh, but not for the reasons we may think. At, at first glance, we may suggest that this parable is saying to us, that Jesus is saying to us, to change our lives while there is still time. If not, we won't be saved. It's just suggesting we'll have no life with eternal life. 
But if we look at the words in the context of Jesus before he gives this parable, I wonder if there is something deeper than what we receive at first glance. Time, repentance, forgiveness, all go hand in hand with Jesus. Right before this text, we read this morning, Jesus speaking about forgiveness. This conversation sparked the people listening to Jesus to ask uh, about a concern they had been dealing with for some time. Tell us, Jesus, they say. Tell us, Jesus, about those people whom Pontius Pilate murdered while worshiping in Jerusalem. Was this God's judgment? Was their time up? Did they not ask for forgiveness? Did they not repent in time? Another way of asking what they're asking, in in our words, was this part of God's master plan? Does everything happen for a reason, Jesus? Jesus' response, no. Then Jesus continues, these deaths were no more part of God's plan than the deaths of the 18 people killed when that tower fell, Jesus says. Two tragedies, one human evil, the other natural evil. These onlookers of Jesus were asking the very question that continues to circulate in our society today. If human evil or or natural evil are not the will of God, if God does not need some angel in heaven, or, or if there is no, if this is not some part of some master plan, then why are innocent being, people being killed in Ukraine? Or why did a 15-year-old boy take the lives of five people in Raleigh? Why did 100 people die at the hands of Hurricane Ian? All the suffering. Better yet, to all the survivors, why are some killed in car accidents or illnesses or natural disasters, acts of violence, and others spared? It's the age old question. It's a question they proposed to Jesus that day. It's an age question that we have trouble defining. In the theology world, this is called. Theodicy. A New Testament professor at Carolina, uh, Bart Ehrman, famously coined this as God's problem. He wrote a book about that title, actually, and he points to this dilemma and the very reason why he lost his faith and became an atheist. Ehrman argues that the Bible does not offer a single sufficient response for why we suffer and confesses that our inability to answer the theodicy question made it impossible for him to believe any longer. For him and for others, the reality of suffering means that either God doesn't care or God can't do anything about it. Either way, that's God's problem and not a God worth believing in. Now, we may disagree with Ehrman, but we all wrestle with the question, and through the years, there are a number of responses have come up. There is the protest theodicy response. This response 
argues that God could do something about evil in the world, and we must therefore employ God to act. Think psalms of amen, like Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, how long? Or Psalm 44. Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Do not reject us forever, Lord. Between goodness and power and existence of evil, uh, protest the odyssey gives a little when it comes to the goodness of God, suggesting more or less that God's really not all that good. But we can cry out of protest, beg God to act, and maybe God will. Now, there's the Iranian theodicy suggesting that suffering is a necessary component This is called the soul-making process. In other words, we can't grow closer to God without trials and tribulations. The degree of suffering that's justifiable is debatable. But the possibility of it must exist for humans of free will to embrace the love of God. The wiggle room in this theology comes from our perspective of suffering. That God did and does God's best, but freedom requires opportunities for joy and pain, for good and evil, as if God is like a parent watching your child learn to walk, but letting them fall. However, even if we grant people can eventually come to see the suffering as having shaped them, appear to gross one's faith, the scale of suffering in the world, well, that complicates this notion a little bit. Is there any amount of growth worth six and a half million people dying of COVID? Or 300 children that die of AIDS every single day? Or the 46,000 people who commit suicide annually just in the United States? What lessons we learn from earthquakes and tsunamis tsunamis and hurricanes how can we justify cancer justifying cancer really is not a game i'm interested in playing in harold i mean rabbi harold kirshner argues and proposes an alternative to this kirshner's son died as a teenager with an eye on the soul-making theory He confesses that while he does believe he's a better person because of his son's death, he says, I would give up all of the gains in a second if I could just have my son back. Kirshner and others give us process theology. And they are willing to to give a little on God's power. God is morally good, just limited in acting on it. Or maybe you buy that. That God doesn't want any more anyone to suffer, but God's hands are mostly tied. I don't know if that one or any of them really worked for me at all. We could go on and on and on with countless theodicies. And at times of our lives, one fits better than another. As one commentator said, 
suffering is less a reality Christians can explain and more a battle that Christians engage. Which leads us to the parable. What does a parable about a fig tree have anything to do with suffering? Perhaps nothing. But the gardener? And the parable has everything to do with it. When the world looks at us and it says that we're way too gone, there's just too much suffering. When the world, in the world, in our, in our city, with you and me, there was no longer able to produce fruit, God says, I am patient. God says, Wait, I'm not done here yet. God's not shy away from suffering or the brokenness or the messiness. Or the, the, the dirt within our own lives, God instead bends down with all the manure around us. God tends to you and to me and to the world. After all, God so loved the world that God suffered by giving us his only son. There was a pastor that after graduating seminary got a call. They came to a small congregation in a small town. There were about 30 families in the church. She said to go out to visit every single family for the next six months in her time there. As her six months was coming to a close, she had almost done it. And she, there, there she was there with just one family left. And she was told, don't bother. They're not coming back. Ignoring those words, the young minister drove out to the couple's house. The wife was home, invited her in. She made her some coffee. They talked about this, and they talked about that, and then they talked about it. Two years earlier, the wife was at home with that young son. She was vacuuming in the back bedroom. She had not checked on him for a while, Then she went into the den, and she didn't find him. She followed the trail through the den, through the patio doors out the patio to the swimming pool where she found him. At the funeral, our friends at the church were very kind, she said. They told us this is God's will. God had a plan. The minister set her cup down. Should she touch it? Should she? Touch it. She touched it. Your friends meant well, the young pastor said, but they were wrong. God does not will the death of children. The woman's face red and her jaw got firm. And who do you blame? Who do you blame? I guess you blame me. No, no. I, I don't blame you. I don't blame God. I can't explain it. I only know that God's heart broke first and fastest when this happened. The woman had her arms crossed and her eyes were locked and it was clear the conversation was over. Driving back to the church, this young pastor just kicked herself. Why, you know, why didn't she just leave it alone? Why does she have to touch it? Several days later, the phone rang. It was the wife. We do not know where this is leading, she said to that young pastor. 
would you come talk to my husband and me? For all this time, we thought God was mad at us. Maybe. 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 It was the other way around. Barbara Brown Taylor describes the cross not as something God desired, but something that God suffered. Repent, Jesus says, or you will perish. We make a big deal of that word repent. Repent simply means to turn around. Jesus says, turn around. Today, turn around and see God's grace. Turn around, Jesus, please. The world is full of suffering, yes. And you and me and none of us, none of us can do it alone. Turn around. Our God, Jesus says, our God is at work in your life. Turn around. God is here to help you get through it. Turn around. God gave you this community to help you get through it. Turn around. Our loving and forgiving and patient God is not through with you yet. Turn around and see the hope for the future. And this is where our hope lays. This is somewhere between the tragedies of our past and a new day. Our hope is in an our God, the gardener, who bends down and gets dirty. Hope is like a gardener caring for a fig tree that everyone else sees there's no more potential. Hope is in a God who's generative. Hope is in a God who says, back away. I'm not done with this yet. Hope, the poet Polly Murray writes, hope is a crushed stalk between clenched fingers. Hope is a bird's wing broken by a stone. Hope is a word of trueless ditty, a tuneless ditty. Hope, a word whispered with the wind, a dream of 40 acres and a mule, a cabin of one's own and a moment to rest, a name of a place for one's child and children's children at last. Hope is a song of a weary throat. Give me a song of hope in a world where I can sing it. Give me a song of faith and people to believe in it. Give me a song of kindness in a country to, where I can live in it. Give me a song of hope and love in a brown girl's heart to hear it. Whatever suffering that you are struggling with this, this morning, If you look into the world and you see all the suffering, the violence on the news, the polarization between our governments, the wars, the hunger, the scarcity, the sickness, the devastations, and you wonder, is there any hope for a future? Jesus is whispering in your ear, Turn around. God is at work. Claiming that this world is precious. If you come to this church this morning with the city of Raleigh on your mind, wondering about all the suffering of those who died, who were injured, and witnessed the incident, 
Jesus is whispering in your ear, turn around. God is at work. The city of Raleigh, the town of Lillington, is precious. Coming to church this morning with your own suffering on your mind, whether that's the suffering of burnout or loneliness or finances or your marriage or your children or your parents or health or job or addiction or anxiety or anything else. Jesus is whispering in your ear. Turn around. Turn around and see the God at work who calls you child, who names you beloved, and who declares to you that you are precious. Amen.